0: going to talk for a minute about a false dilemma Um, so you know the idea of a false dilemma when we think there are only two options but there might be more than that Um, so I'm going to give you an example but as we often do invite you to shout out in the room an example or maybe uh, online if you want to um, either use the chat or unmute Um, let me give you an example of a false dilemma Either you agree with me or you're not my friend, <laughs> right? And so obviously there are different options than either you agree with me or you're not my friend, right? Friends often do a really good job of disagreeing with me. But sometimes we act like this. Either you agree with me or you're not my friend. So that's an example. Other ideas? What are other examples of a false, uh, a false dilemma where we have to choose, but actually we don't have to? Ah, there you go. Yeah, two parties, either Republican or Democrat, and that's it. Yeah, false dilemma. Another example. Which is your favorite child of the family? Uh, Particularly when you have two. (laughs) And which child is, is the favorite? Yeah, a false dilemma. Good. Any other thoughts? Great, great. Yeah, so good theology or a concern for people's physical well-being, right? And, and certainly we don't have to choose, but sometimes it's presented as though we have to choose. That's good. Anyone else? Cookies or pie. Cookies or pie. Yeah, <laughs> why choose? I like that. That's good. Yeah, why choose? There's there's one that I hear, and I process myself sometimes, that sometimes we think either God is loving or God judges. And if God judges, then we think, well, he must not be very loving. And we say, well, if he loves, he won't judge. And I think it's a false dilemma, and I want to unpack that a bit today. Um, and I want to pray, and I want to leave a moment of silence as well. And in particular, my thought is... To pray to God, to help us to know him more, and to pray, to help us to be more like him. So let's uh, let's join together in prayer, in in making a request to God. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, as we are together in a, a time of intentionally setting aside time to be in your presence. And, and your presence is with us all through the week by your spirit. And yet it's a special time when we gather to worship, to pray, to be together. And now we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would help us to know you more, and that you would help us to be more like you. Please hear the, the silent prayers for each one of us for your work. So, Spirit, as we have prayed, we look forward to your work. Uh, We pray that you'd use your word, the Bible, that you'd use Jesus' words, that you'd use Jesus' actions to do your work in us. We thank you that you will. And we do long to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Title today is A Weeping Savior. And we'll talk more about this drawing in a little bit. We're in Luke 19, Uh, and we continue this journey together, I encourage you to have the Bible open in front of you. Uh, Physical Bibles are a wonderful thing, Uh, electronic Bibles are a wonderful thing, Um, maybe you've memorized it, I don't know, that's a wonderful thing too, but whatever form you have it, uh, to have it in front of you, uh, we're going to look at this section from verses 28 to 48 in Luke 19, Uh, link there for the handouts uh, as well as, as the text the first verse here uh, gives us a good opportunity to look at the background. It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And I just want to look at two things here. The first thing is why it's significant that he was going up to Jerusalem. Luke has set us up for this highly anticipated entry to Jerusalem. Getting to Jerusalem was such an important part as Luke told the story, so that that half of the book, more than half the book so far, has been this journey to Jerusalem, starting at chapter 9, and it says Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And this was really significant because Jerusalem was the center of power for Judaism. And yet Jesus was coming as the Son of God. So the true power was coming to the human power that was broken. And and we know as the story progresses. That Jesus is coming to the place where human power was, but it needed judgment. It needed correction. And so we have the true power coming. And so we anticipate, what's it like when he finally arrives? And this is what Jesus has been saying. He said, when I get there, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He says, this is what it's going to be like when I get there. A little bit further in that chapter, he says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Maybe it was in one of Jesus' more discouraged days, but he said, surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. <laughs> this is what's going to happen when I get there. And then we just saw recently in chapter 18, the son of man will be delivered over the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Luke has been preparing us for this time when Jesus would enter Jerusalem and Jesus has said repeatedly, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die when we get there. In contrast, as we recently saw, the people thought that when Jesus got to Jerusalem, the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. (laughs) They thought, great, he's going to take out the other rulers, he's going to be ruler and it's all going to be great. They expected to be in positions of power when he got there. So we're told he's in his last steps going up to Jerusalem. And it says that after Jesus had said this and when it says after he had said this, it's a really good idea to back up and say, well, what is the this? And we just recently looked at his last stop in Jericho. We saw this blind man who cries out to the son of David and is healed. We saw Zacchaeus who was seeking to see Jesus and he was transformed. And then Jesus says, here's my purpose. My purpose is to seek and to save those who are lost. And then last week we saw this, this parable that Jesus told about the ten minas. Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to be gone for a while. And my people are to put to work my resources for my purposes. Right? That, this is what Jesus had taught them. And he said, there are others who won't put my resources to work. They will reject Jesus. Or they'll passively resist him and just say, I won't fight against him. I'm just going to ignore him. And Jesus said it'll be to their great loss. There'll be loss and judgment. So this is what leads us to this moment when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. So verse 28, with that as a background. After Jesus had said this, he went up on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, We looked at this event uh, not long ago, as recorded in, in the Gospel of John. Just want to highlight a few things here. Jesus anticipates going in uh, to Jerusalem. He says, "I want this young, this colt as an animal to ride on." And when the people say, "What are you doing? Why are you taking this colt?" say, "The Lord needs it." And they went and they said again, "The Lord needs it." And and this word can just mean master. Uh, It can just mean the person in charge. And in that day, the king could come and say, I need whatever you have. The king could come and say, I need your donkey. I need your house. I need what you have. The king could do that. But this is also the same word that in the Old Testament is the translation for Yahweh, the personal name of God. And so Jesus comes and says, God, meaning me, needs this. So they got the colt. So they've come to the place where you can finally see Jerusalem. You can see the temple. This is the first time in this this time that Luke describes when you can actually see where they were going. And they come, and the crowd is so excited, joyfully praising God. Uh, I love this description that we get. It says the whole crowd, that that all of them joyfully began to praise. And it was a crowd. There was a lot of them. (laughs) All these people together shouting out praise. And you notice what they say. Blessed is the king. It's itching because the other accounts of Palm Sunday say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the man who comes in the name of the Lord. But here they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. A very bold thing to say. Coming into this place where the power is. Saying, no, blessed is this king who comes all that's been put together for that day was a clear declaration that Jesus was coming as the Messiah. He was coming to be God's chosen Savior for Israel. And everybody's joining in this praise. Well, most everybody. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep silent, the stones will cry out. So in the crowd, all this, this great crowd of Pharisees, were told, or a great crowd of, of people shouting, there were some in the crowd that were Pharisees, the religious leaders who, who weren't excited about Jesus coming. And I love this description, we're told some of them objected. Which raises the possibility some of them joined in the praise. Some of them objected. And they say, Jesus, you'd better stop your disciples from saying things like, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know where you're going? Do you know the conflict this will create? They resisted the claim that Jesus was king. They said, you're not powerful enough to make that claim. You'll be in trouble, we'll be in trouble. And so in the parable last week, we saw the delegation that was sent to say, we don't want this person to be king. And this is what these... Religious leaders are saying, Jesus, we don't want you to be king. Stop your disciples from saying such things. And Jesus said, basically, no, it's true. He's saying, I am the king, and it will be proclaimed. You can't stop it. If you stop them, these rocks are going to shout out. This is true. It is good. So it's very clear. Jesus entered Jerusalem proclaiming and being proclaimed as king. He's proclaimed by a great crowd of disciples. This is what it's like when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And then we find one of the most surprising passages. In verse 41, we're told, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. What a surprise it must have been for this great crowd of disciples. They're all joyfully praising, saying... Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the, and some of the Pharisees say, Jesus, stop that. And Jesus says, no, this is good. Even the stones will cry out. And then they look, and the next thing Jesus is doing is weeping. He is broken because of what he sees. He says, of Jerusalem, if only you knew what would bring you peace. Just like the song that we just sang, Shalom. And this is not just the absence of conflict, this is life and whole, health and wholeness and hope. Relationship with God and relationship with people. He so said, today is a day when you could have stepped into peace. And you didn't know. And then Jesus says, well, the days are coming. And these, this is a horrible description. A horrible description of things that happened to the, the city walls, but to the people and the children and this certainly fits with the destruction of Jerusalem not many years later. Jesus said, if only, if only you'd known what it was that would bring peace. And as he, in his, in his heart, in his mind, he could see what was coming. He wept for them. He wept and he said, you have such trouble because, and this phrase is so challenging. He says, because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. You didn't recognize the time when God would be present to bring judgment and salvation, depending upon how people would respond. You didn't recognize this. And so then Jesus says, I weep. And he was moved deeply in his spirit to cry for them. They rejected Jesus. Jerusalem did. They said, no, we don't want you. And soon they had him killed. And it was just as Jesus had predicted. He said this over and over again. But he didn't say, See, I was right. (laughs) I told you. He wept. He was so broken by this. So destruction was coming because they rejected Jesus. And this grieved him. He was broken by realizing, by seeing their refusal to recognize God's work to rescue them. So now I think we come to the verses that are really the point of where Jesus was going when he went to Jerusalem. He came to the temple. We're told when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Jesus has finally come. He's finally arrived at this destination which was really the temple. And when he got there, he rescued the temple for its intended purpose. It was not to be a marketplace. It was not to be a place where, where people were taking advantage of the fact that people have to buy things and exchange things. It was to be a place where God is known, where God is proclaimed, a place of prayer. Jesus came and rescued him. He, he said, we've got to clear it up. And then what's the next thing he does? Every day, Jesus taught. And I love this expression. Sometimes I thought Jesus went there and cleared out the temple and now it's clear so now go ahead with whatever you were going to do. Jesus cleared it out and every day he taught. He spent time teaching in the temple. He's come to the place where he is to be to do the work he's to do and yet the religious leaders were trying to kill him. They refused him. They rejected him. So In the section we see, we finally made it. Jesus has finally reached Jerusalem. He enters into Jerusalem with this great praise from his disciples that they're shouting, joyfully proclaiming that the king of, of God's choosing has come. The religious leaders, they rejected him. They planned to kill him. And in response to that, Jesus wept. He didn't say, okay, so now I will end your power. Now I will kick you out. Now you get what you deserve. Jesus wept. And then he used the temple for what it was supposed to be. He taught the ways and the will of God. And so we know soon after this, Jesus will be killed. Yet he'll come to life again and reign as king forever. And we know that those who oppose Jesus will be judged. And yet when Jesus arrives and he sees those who won't accept him, he weeps. The big idea is that that Jesus weeps when people miss or refuse his offer of peace. He doesn't get angry at them. and he's, He's not judgmental of them. He weeps when people miss or refuse his offer of peace. And he does this because there's no other way to escape judgment and death and to experience the love and life of God. This is it. This was the day when the offer of God for peace with God showed up in Jerusalem. And they rejected him. So Jesus wept. In his heart of love, this deeply hurt him. That these people he cared for, he loved, who wanted, he wanted to be a part of his kingdom. They rejected him, so he wept. So we'll look at this drawing for a second. Uh, Thanks to Karen for the help. This uh, this house is in trouble. Uh, I don't know if you get the sense of that. The house is already underwater, uh, and this giant wave is coming. The house is in trouble, uh, but we're concerned more about the person who is on this house. <laughs> and this person is in trouble. So now with this mini parable, imagine that help has come. Right? There's a rescue that's coming to rescue, to, uh, to protect this person. So help has come. And the question is, how will people respond? And the way Jesus tells the story, people respond in multiple ways. Some people jump in the basket and say, thank you, God. <laughs> Thank you for coming to rescue me. Sadly, when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem, some people said, well, not you. We might want to rescue but not you. No, we don't want you to be our king. We don't want you to be our God. We'd rather go down with the ship. We'd rather die than to choose you. And that's what they chose. And that's what they experienced. And sadly, there were some people who just were clueless. They say, I need help. But they don't realize that God is standing right there with his rescue, saying, I'm here. I'm here to provide a rescue from the trouble that you have. I'm here. Will you just turn? And sadly, they miss it. So these are the people down there. You probably can't see it very well, but I want to focus for a second on the pilot of the helicopter. (laughs) How does the pilot respond? How does the pilot respond to the people who look up at the pilot with a fist and say, No, I don't want your rescue. I don't want you. How about how the pilot responds to the people who just are ignorant and say, I don't know about that. I... And the pilot was weeping. Jesus wept over the people who missed what he came to give, who who chose not to accept. He didn't get angry. He didn't lash out in judgment. He wept because Jesus weeps when people miss or refuse his offer of peace. And so here's the reality from our false dilemma that Jesus is love and Jesus will judge. It's not either or. He is the one who loves so deeply. And Jesus said, God has given Jesus authority to judge because he's the Son of Man. He will be the judge. It's not either or, it's not love or judgment. He is the judge. He comes to offer a rescue. And he longs for people to accept that rescue. And when they don't, when they miss it, he weeps. The application of this, the first thing, is to praise God. That he is the perfect love and perfect justice. So, how does that work? Well, this statement from Romans to me is so powerful. God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He didn't demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies or loves those who have faith in Jesus Christ. The work of God in Jesus Christ is how he was both love and justice completely. You see, justice without love would condemn the whole world. Right? Justice without love, we're just all in trouble. Everybody will be lost because we all fall short of the goodness we ought to have, as Bruce led us in the prayer earlier. Justice without love leads to condemnation. But love without justice ignores injustice. And so it becomes unjust. Love without justice is unjust. So how do you combine that perfect justice and perfect love is Jesus on the cross? And here's the amazing thing. When Jesus comes to sacrifice himself, to be on that cross, he weeps for the people who miss him. He weeps for the people who reject him. As Jesus is on the cross, what does he do? He says, Father, would you forgive these people who are killing me? (laughs) He loves deeply, even as he is paying the price to provide a way of salvation that people must accept. We praise God because God is exactly what we need him to be. If God were only just, only the perfectly just would survive. Right? So a God who is only just means he will be alone. Father, son, and spirit, they will be alone because nobody else could be with a God who is only just. If God were only love, evil would win because there would be no work to bring justice So the reality is that Jesus Christ is the one and only solution to the problem of humanity that preserves both justice and rescues sinful people. And this should move us to praise God, right? This is the only thing that could help us, and it is the very thing that God provides through Jesus. We give praise to the one who is exactly what we need. And anything less would not provide the goodness of God, the goodness of heaven, we need both justice and love. And at the cross, Jesus combined those two perfectly. So we give praise to God. And then the call is to be like God. right? The call is to be like him, to be perfect in love and perfect in justice. And I think one of the places we find most challenging, I find most challenging, is to love others even when our cause is just and our view is right. Well, in our own humble opinion, of course. But, right, when we think our cause is right, we say this is the one time I don't need to love. Right, now is the time to take action. If my perspective is right, I don't need to love now because I just need to proclaim that my way is right, that I see it clearly. And if this isn't a description of the world today when I think of politics, right, why would I love people who are so wrong, (laughs) right? Why would I love people when my cause is right and their cause is so bad? And we justify this idea that when I'm right and they're wrong, love is no longer necessary. We do this in family interactions. We say, yeah, of course we're supposed to be patient and kind, but not when people behave like they're behaving. I've been trying to be so good and they're not, and so how can I love? And churches split such a sad thing that individual churches denominations there's so many times that god's people say but now we don't have to love because we're right and they're wrong and and we get to practice this all the time in terms of cultural values to recognize times that we say no that's that's a bad thing no that's wrong because i can show you in the bible where that's wrong and so now i can just judge We are called to be like God, to be perfect in love and perfect in justice. So there can be no pride and no judgment, right? Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. So the question that I ask myself, I ask you too, do we weep when our enemies don't turn to God? Do we weep when our enemies are deceived? Or do we delight in their downfall? Right, how tempting it is to say, oh, look at that, finally. They are, they are hurt, they're damaged, they're, they're neutralized. Look at that, finally. And it's not a response of love. We're to be perfect in love and perfect in justice. And, and in humility, of course, we also need to know that our view is not perfectly right and our cause is not perfectly just. And others have important things to teach us. But to say it again, Especially when we're seeking justice and truth. We must love. Right, And so this, this description is so helpful for me from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And especially when we're interacting with people we think are wrong, their ideas or their behavior, love does not dishonor others. Right. It is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs and say, look, there they go again. Yeah, I can tell you the list of times that they've done that before. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Look at this. For our enemies, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Especially when we are seeking justice and truth. We must love because that is who God is. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends, to sacrifice for the good of people that we would rather judge is exactly who Jesus is. He came to those who were rejecting them, him, and he said, I love you, and I weep when you reject. Right? We're to be like God, perfect love and perfect justice, and a part of this is the urgent appeal to people to be reconciled to this God of love and justice. God loves each and every person and wants each person rescued. This is the heart of God. He says, I want to rescue the people who have fought against me, who shake their fist against me, who ignore me. He loves each person so much he sent his son to suffer and to die. Because of that, we join in this work, and so we should really care that people come to know Jesus because he does and because the only alternative to trusting jesus is horrible to be cut off from the love and the goodness of god and only to experience his judgment that we should urgently join the appeal to be reconciled to god to, to accept this love to respond to jesus and we should do this with a variety of strategies Right? We're different people in different situations. Today, after the service, as I mentioned, we have a conversation about Alpha. This is a cool program, but it's one thing. Right? There are lots of ways to do this. But one of the things I love about Alpha is it says, would you come in and join in relationship in a community? And then let's puzzle about the things of Jesus together. And I love this vision. It's not the one way to do it. It is just one way to do it. But we should... Urgently appeal to people to say, this is amazing. God isn't just a God who goes around rewarding good people and punishing bad people. God is a God whose heart is for those who need rescue. Even for those who are angry at him. His heart is that they would know him. And so we should appeal to people, of course, we should appeal to people in love. So Jesus weeps. A surprising thing when the greatest power of the universe comes to the center of Of religious power and they reject him and the response of god is to weep to weep because of the loss that is ours jesus christ is the perfect expression of both love and justice and our longing our prayer our heart is that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of this good and just and gracious king let's pray father in heaven We thank you that you are love and you are just. And we thank you, Jesus, for your action on the cross that perfectly expressed both. And we thank you, Jesus, for weeping over those who miss you, who reject you. Jesus, I thank you for weeping over my heart, both in the past when when I didn't understand you, And even today, as I so often do not follow in your ways, I thank you that rather than judging me, you weep. And by your spirit, you long for us to turn. And so, Father, today I pray that you would do your work in our hearts, that your love, that your weeping for those who are distant from you, would shape who we are. And I ask that you would use us to make known the wonder The beauty of our God who loves so much and is perfectly just and accomplished that at the cross through Jesus and offers to us life and hope and peace forever because of what he has done. In our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.